Hey, good evening, everyone. Um, it's a real delight to be with you all this evening. Um, yeah, I'm all the way from Wellington, and um, we feel that we are in Stellenbosch so much, maybe we should move here. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, unless the Lord says we would love to, but um, we work with students. I'm involved in a lot of students' lives through leading a program in Wellington called TMT. It's a discipleship program. And yeah, I've been involved in Josh Jen from the beginning almost, for about 23 years now, and just journeying with Andrew on his team, um, traveling, teaching, trying to stay out of trouble, really, uh, or get into trouble in the right way. Um, so this evening, I, yeah, I want to dive straight into it, and I want to speak about the greatness of God. I want to share with you, you know, just in light of what we've been singing about, about the greatness of God. And I want to start with an illustration from actually Mount Everest. And, you know, I'm, I enjoy reading a lot about climbers that have climbed some of the, the tallest mountains in the world, especially Everest. Everest has got a certain allure to it, a certain um, a mystery to it. It's called the goddess of the earth by the locals. And I don't know if you know much about Everest, but Everest is almost nine kilometers high, uh, extremely high, climbers have said that when they go to Everest, even at base camp, how small it makes them feel. Um, that it takes two months just to acclimatize before you even can climb Everest for the most, most of the climbers. And when you climb to the top, at the top of Everest, nine kilometers high, there are these winds, they're called jet streams, they circle the earth, that blow around 120 kilometers an hour that catch the top of Mount Everest. As they climb, you know, they get into that last zone, they call it the death zone, because there's such a lack of oxygen that your body begins to shut down um, because of the lack of oxygen as you try and get to the summit and reach it. Um, temperatures in summer... Summer, average minus 19, and in winter, the average minus 35. And uh, climbers have said, as I said in the beginning, when they're there, how small it makes them feel. Now, we tonight get to worship the God that spoke Everest into being. We serve that God. We serve the God, and, and I think we live in a culture where in some ways we've lost the greatness of God, and we've We've replaced the greatness of God for a little God who fits into our world and our agenda and into our lives. And we make a God really after a, a bit of an attachment onto our lives. A God who kind of says, God, won't you follow me? Won't you just bless me and, and get onto my agenda? Won't you, won't you do what I ask you to do? And somehow, even our churches today, we want to package this God as a, as a kind of friend before anything else. And we've lost something of the wonder of who he is. And tonight, you know, I want to say that I want to, if anything, just lift us up again to the wonder of the greatness and the mercy of what God is like. Um, our God is, is, a, is a God in whom we are actually small in his sight. Uh, and we're meant to feel in some ways simultaneously small and insignificant in his sight and simultaneously loved and important in his sight. Only God can do that. Um, and so I want us to look. And what I want to do is I really want to look at a portion of Scripture. Really what I want to do is just preach from the Bible tonight, you know. It's like, uh, and uh, from Isaiah chapter 6. And it's a story of a young man, really. He was a young man when he had an encounter, an experience with God. And uh, this encounter really launched his call. He was called by God. And part of it deals with calling. I don't know if, how many of you sense calling or you, you believe God has called you to something. We all should be called. 
obviously, we're called into a relationship to follow Jesus Christ. Um, you know, we as apprentices, we as disciples, we follow after him. But there's a sense of a call that we are called, each of you, to specific things. You called to, you know, Ephesians 2 says that you've been saved to do good works. Uh, you've, you his workmanship in Christ Jesus. You're made with a purpose um, to fit into this grand plan. Not for God to fit into your plan, but for you to fit into his story and into his glory, into his plan. And so as we look tonight at Isaiah 6, I want to just unpack it for us. Just That's all I want to do. I want to leave you so you can go back to the scripture. I don't really have any profound things to say. Hopefully the Bible does. Um, I just want to be a good postman and deliver the word. And then God can do the rest. And so let's read it together. And so we see this picture, and it starts in Isaiah 6 verse 1, of this young man, Isaiah, who was a prophet. What is a prophet, you might ask? Great question. You're sharp, man. <laughs> um, a prophet is essentially a person who's a spokesman for God. And in the Old Testament, especially those that were called by God as prophets, their words carried such authority, those who were true prophets, that many of their prophecies were written down, and that became Scripture in the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament is essentially the words of the Old Testament prophets that were ordained and called by God. And these men, like, they knew God. They carried great authority. They were, these were good men. These were good people that loved the Lord. Obviously, it wasn't just men who were prophets. There were women who were prophets. In fact, part of the Old Testament was written um, with, uh, by ladies, not in, in terms of books. But, for example, you've got sections that are songs sung out by prophetesses, like Moses' sister, M Miriam. And that's part of Scripture that we have it today. Did you know that? Anyway, just a fun fact. I thought it was just cool. I don't know why. It's mentioned it. And in Isaiah 6 verse 1, let's read it together. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. Two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has, taken, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. So this, firstly, what I want to do is bring out the aspect of that we see that Isaiah has an encounter with the greatness of God. And it causes him to respond in a certain way. The first thing is we see with the greatness of God is we see he, he get, has an encounter of God as Lord, the Lordship of the Lord. And, you know, firstly, what he does is when he, he sees God, he has a vision of God, it says that he saw the Lord, and it says he saw him on a throne. It's interesting that God, where is he? He's on a throne. What does a throne signify? A throne is a place of authority and a place of power. Isaiah is trying to say that he's seeing someone on his throne, someone who has such power and authority that he has ultimate power and authority. He's the throne over the whole world. 
This is the one that rules and reigns. And you know, it's interesting, God is not kind of among his people. You do find that in, in Revelation. But in the Old Testament, God is on a throne. And I want to say, do you know today that do you serve that God that is on the throne, not just of your heart, but is on the throne and he's organizing nations and putting those things in place? That, that God is so great, so powerful, that he is like that. In fact, the word, when it says, I saw the Lord, it uses a word, Adonai. And the Jews, they, they had such a respect for the name of God, the personal name of God, which is Yahweh, the personal name of God that was revealed. But they didn't even want to call him Yahweh out of respect for the Lord. So they called, when they read, saw the word Yahweh in, in the Hebrew, they actually said Lord. And they replaced Yahweh with Adonai out of respect. And so they call him Adonai. But in this place, it actually uses the word Adonai, and it literally means sovereign master, king overall, ruler in charge. Um, this God that has unlimited power at, at his disposal. Um, and it's interesting that he sees God on the throne in charge in a, in a time, actually, of great uncertainty. Why was there uncertainty? Well, in the beginning, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. And so this young man, Isaiah, was living in, in Judah, actually, which was yeah, Judah and Israel. They were separated at that point. And he was ruling over, and he had been a good king, almost, for part of the time. And he had, been, he had ruled Judah for, for about 50 years. It was prosperous. They were wealthy. They were religious. Everyone went to church. They were also very corrupt. And Uzziah was, on the whole, a good king. He was a stable king. The country had stability. But in the last few years of his reign, he kind of become, he became proud and arrogant, and God struck him down with leprosy. And he ended up kind of just hardening his heart and having the judgment of God against him. And at that time, in the year that he died, there was a rise of other nations, of other world powers. I think it was the Assyrians that began to rise up and threaten the borders of Israel and Judah. And he's living in this time of great uncertainty. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I know I've experienced a lot of uncertainty in the last while. We living, if you live in, you know, if you're from South Africa, it's like we are, we have the Prince of Darkness, ESCOM, <laughs> right? And we live in a time, and I personally, I mean, in the holidays, I was experiencing a lot of anxiety, actually. I was, I've got, you know, three, three children, well, two of them have grown up now, 22, 19, 15, and, and they're like facing a future just like you facing a future of like where to go and should I stay in the country of like what does the future look like? Is it stable? And, and you know, there's crime and there's all these things around us, corrupt government. And we think, but, you know, how do we navigate all this? And I was struggling with a lot of fear. I was like, Lord, should I even be in the country? I've, I have a passport for the Seychelles. That's where I was born. Um, and I've got a Seychelles passport. I'm a citizen of the Seychelles. Have you, you've, you know, have you heard of the Seychelles? Have you heard of Mauritius? Have you heard of the Bahamas? Well, that, that's like rubbish dump stuff compared to Seychelles. Seychelles, beautiful. White sandy beaches. It is beautiful. And uh, that's where my fa family come from. We've got land on the island. We've got property. We've got a private beach. No jokes. Don't think you can come and visit me now. No, you can. Just rock up like, hey, I'm a friend of Mike. <laughs> and, uh, and so... But I've been struggling, and like, Lord, do you want us here? Maybe we should go and plant a church, you know, spiritualize us leaving in some way. Or, you know, how do I, I navigate this? And just dealing with a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. And we've invested into the country. We, our roots are here. We're here. 
And I, and I remember as I was struggling through this, actually, I, I was in Isaiah 6 in my quiet time. And it says, in the year Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. And just suddenly God said, Mike, who is on the throne? And if you believe that I'm on the throne, if you believe that I'm in charge, firstly, of your life, and actually of what's going on, if I've asked you to stay, then you have to stay. And I want to say this to you, just as a piece of advice. If God tells you to go, you go. But if he tells you to stay, you stay, because the safest place and the most secure place that you can be is in the will of God, right? The will of God. And so the will of God is where God is enthroned. It's where he's ruling. It's where he has, I mean, he has lordship over everything. Everything God says, mine. There's no place that God doesn't say mine, whether you like it or not or agree with it or not. It's still his. But there's a sense of as you're in his will, it's the safest place to be. And so I settled that. I realized this is the Lord. The greatness of God includes God is on his throne. He's Lord. And I want to ask you to make sure you settle that. Never, ever make a decision financially or out of safety. Don't ever do that because you'd find yourself probably running out of his will. Make it in, 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 in with leaders around you, with those who are mature in the faith, and you make a call that way. I know there's a funny story of a guy in the Falkland Islands. Sorry, he was in England. And in the 80s, no, he wasn't in England. He was somewhere in the world, sorry. And wherever he was in the world, the point is he studied around the world. He was in a country that was a bit volatile. And he studied around the world where would be the safest place to live. And this is in the 80s, the early 80s. And if any of you know history, there was a big civil war that broke out or a war that broke out with England and Argentina, the United Kingdom and Argentina, and it's centered around this little island called the Falkland Islands. Um, and so he did research, and apparently he found out statistically the safest place on the earth is the Falkland Islands. And so he moved there, and then war broke out. <laughs> where do you want to be? You want to be where God is, is asking you to be, and he's Lord, and you obey him, and you follow him. And so if you're ever struggling with anxiety, I want to say, you see the Lord, and he's on the throne. He's on the throne, and he's Adonai. The second thing we find about the greatness of God is we see his holiness, other aspects of the greatness of God. And there's this incredible picture in verse 2 and how it speaks about these beings. It doesn't tell us how many there are, but it says they're these angelic beings called the seraphim. And it's the only place in Scripture that we read about them. Um, we read about the cherubim in other places, Revelation, etc. But these beings... They are circling around the throne, it says, that they are above him, stood the seraphim. And these seraphim were these, these creatures, and the word seraphim means burning ones, burning ones. And, and so they're, they're these incredible creatures with six wings. And, and, and amazingly, these burning ones, and often it's been asked, but why were they burning? What was it about them that was causing them to burn? And some think it's maybe because they were burning for the love of, out, of the, out of a love for God, that they were literally burning, or that they were these you know, angelic beings called to minister to him that reflected him, because ultimately it says that our God is a consuming fire. From his throne comes fire. So either way, they're burning, and, and they're burning singing a song. Holy, holy, holy. And their wings, it's such an interesting story because two of their wings, with two of their wings, they're covering their eyes. And with two of their wings, they're covering their feet. Why? Why? And again, we don't quite know because it doesn't tell us, but it could be that because they are so overwhelmed with the greatness and the holiness of God that they can't even look upon the Lord. And they are pure angelic beings. 
They're so overwhelmed by the holiness and the greatness of God that they're covering their feet almost to signify, I, I, I don't want to be seen. I don't want it to be about me. It has to be about him. And so in a sense, they're covering themselves while they're flying so that they can make much of him and glorify him. And, and, and so these beings are doing so. And as they're doing so, they're singing this, this, three, this, three, this holy, holy, holy. Um, and in fact, in Isaiah, you know, God, um, in Isaiah, 25 times, God is called the Holy One of Israel. What does it mean to be holy? I know there's a song about Justin Bieber called Holy. Um, I've listened to it quite a bit, actually. You know, I'm running to the altar like a track star. You are holy, holy, holy. It's like, brew. you just don't understand what, you know, what are you singing? What is holiness? It's, be, it's a concept that's been dumbed down. And sometimes when we think about holiness in our culture, we think boring. Like if you say that, that person is holy. What, what, what often people mean is like, they're just boring, you know? But actually, holiness is a, is a quality that is so unique to God and something that we are called to exhibit and demonstrate. What is holiness? Holiness is this very thing. It means to be utterly set apart. To be completely separate and pure and perfect in every way from anything that is tainted or imperfect. And you know, the thing about God is because obviously He's the Lord, he is other than us. He's creator. He's different to us. He, he's not in the same category as us. He can't be in the same way that, that like we to be holy. He sets the bar and sets the standard. So much so, I mean, we think of scriptures where it speaks about how it's in uh, Psalm, where is it? Psalm towards 1991, where it speaks about how the Lord dwells in light, light and he wears light as, if a, as, as a garment. That he's putting on light as you, as you wear a garment. As you wear clothing, God wears light. That's how glorious and holy he is. Then in John, 1 John, it says that God is, is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That this being we worship and adore is so pure, he's so set apart, he's so other than us, that he is, he is light. doesn't mean that he's energy, because he's a person with a personality, but, you know, we worship a God that is invisible, immortal, the only wise God, it says in Timothy. That this is the God, the mysterious God that we worship. And I think sometimes we want to kind of understand God and put him in a package and, you know, make sure that we get him in some way. It's interesting that um, the, the, the seraphim, they sing holy, 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 mention it three times. Why? Well, the church fathers believed that that term, holy, 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 or that phrase, referred to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And they're saying to the Father, you are holy. Saying to the Son, you are holy. Saying to the Spirit, you are holy. That they're worshiping the three-in-one God. And even that's a mystery. I mean, the idea of the Trinity, that God is one being, but three persons. That is one substance, but he's not three gods. You know, we don't worship three gods, right? We, you know, although the Father is fully God, the Bible speaks about that, the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God, with all the attributes of God and worshipped as God, if you just go read Acts. And yet, they're one being. Now, if you try and understand it, you're going to lose your mind. What do they say? But if you deny the Trinity, you lose your faith. 
And people have tried to understand, grapple, but all we do is we're left with a sense of smallness. Like, God, you are so big and I'm so small. I just don't understand. We don't. Praise God. And sometimes, rather than trying to understand, let's just try and enjoy and worship and celebrate who he is. Yes, we can ask the hard questions. But at the end of the day, we're left with a sense of he's holy and he's other than us. The third thing we find about God is um, in his greatness. We find there's a phrase used, we find he's glorious. So we see he's Lord. We see he's holy. The third thing is we see his glory. And again, the seraphim, they, say, they sing this, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then they say, the whole earth is full of his glory. Glory. And what is glory? Glory, essentially, is how God shows himself. It's all his attributes, his characteristics that are revealed to us and to people. It's his power and his purity and his majesty that is revealed. It's a bit like, you know, um, I've got a friend that went to Buckingham Palace years ago. And um, he actually went, he met the queen when the queen was alive. And he said, walking into Buckingham Palace, they actually, she once a year would host a tea garden, uh, a, a, a a a party in the garden, and, uh, and so what she would do is she would have people from all over who are, you know, leading NGOs and doing good in England. And she would invite them and she would walk around shaking their hand, you know, very good, very with her corgis and all that, you know. And she would like, and then you would get a tour of the gardens and maybe even see a bit of the palace. And this friend of mine that went, he said, it was, abs- it was overwhelming. It was like there was a sense of majesty of royalty, of otherness that was just different. They, it was different. Like you step in and they said it's hard to explain because you're dealing with, with, with an aspect that is just majestic. And this is a person, how much more God that he invites us into his garden, you know? And he says, come, have tea with me. Come, let me show myself to you. Let me reveal the secrets of my heart. And so this glory of God, though, you know, it's interesting, it says the whole earth will experience or get, experience the glory of God. And how will they do so? Firstly, a savior, that he comes to save the, the world for those who, who call upon his name. And on that knee, if you haven't bowed today, you will on that day. You know, if you're struggling to bow your knee to Jesus, you will. He'll get his way. But rather today than on that day, because on that day, if you bow your knee, it'll be before the judge, not before the savior. And it's interesting, the scriptures, how it deals with it. And I want to say part of the glory of God is the judgment of God. That God judges sin. That he's so pure and so holy that he can't just sweep your sin under the rug of the universe. You know, like saying, oh, ho, ho, like big father Christmas in the sky. Ho, ho, ho. Here I am, I'm going to sweep it under. And I'm just going to wink at it. And, you know, just, I love you the way. It's okay. I'll be your friend. God is so holy that he has to judge sin. That sin is an alien concept, this alien thing that has made its way into our world, but he has to judge it because it's not of him. And you know, the idea of God judging, him coming to rule, to judge, is a scary thing. And it's interesting how scripture speaks about this, that he'll judge the whole earth, and he comes in his glory. Look at this scripture. I'm going to give two that's going to freak you out. Revelation 1 verse 7, it says, on that day, for many, it will be a day of terror. What? That's in the Bible? Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. 
and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. What does it mean, wail? It means mourn, cry. It means when they see the Lord, they're not going to go, yay, yay, Jesus, you know? Yeah, like some blonde Norwegian guy coming on the clouds, you know, some people imagine him or some, you know, being who's like with his sleigh and reindeer, you know, and all the, you know, like how does he come? He comes in terror and majesty and glory to the point that those that have rejected him, those who have, if you've been a rebel from God and you haven't submitted under his kingly and kind rule where he's reached out to you in Jesus to rescue you and love you, it says that on that day, you will, you will face terror and mourning because you face the holiness of God and the glory of God. Look at Isaiah 2 verse 19. It says, And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor, See how it links it up? Terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. This is the word of God. Hey, man, but I just thought love wins. <laughs> you just got to work out with the word of God. I'm just the postman, remember? So at that point, when we see this, the picture of God on his throne, we see God as Lord. We see him as holy. We see him as glorious. How does Isaiah respond? And Isaiah, remember, is a good man. I mean, he seems to love the Lord. He seems to know God. And in that place, Isaiah, when he, he realizes the holiness of God, like the seraphim, he sees it. He has this, this vision, this encounter of God. How does he respond? He doesn't go, hey, yeah, Lord, good to see you, man. Hey, Dad. Hey, Daddy. What does he say? Look, verse 5, he says this, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips. For I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I know the, new, the King James Version says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Woe, what does it mean, woe? It doesn't go like, woe. That's not woe. Woe is an old English word. It means calamity and trouble is coming. It speaks of sorrow, of distress, and despair because of his sinful condition. It means I am in deep trouble. It means I am deeply disturbed. I'm up the creek without a paddle. Ah, I, I'm utterly stuck. And you know what he says? He says, woe is me. And compared to God, he realizes obviously how broken, how impure, how sinful he is in the light of God. And he was a good person. And in light of who God is, that standard of holiness, he realizes that he's in deep trouble, that he can never reach out and have fellowship with this great God in the state that he is. And interesting, he says, woe is me. He doesn't go, woe are my parents. Woe are them because they're the reason I am like I am today. You know, woe is my society because I'm just a product of my society, man. No, he, it's like he takes ownership of his sin and he realizes that without the Savior, he's done for. He needs the Lord. And, and it's like he owns it. He, he understands that I am a sinner in need of grace. I am a sinner. I am the one that realizes that I, I am I'm in deep trouble. And, you know, isn't that beautiful? Because the first, that is the first qualification for being a Christian. He's saying, I 
am sick and I'm in need of a doctor. Christianity are not for the good, they're for the dead. Those who realize they're dead and sinful and broken and wicked and evil. Yeah, but I'm a good person. I'm, you know, I'm not bad. No, you're evil. <laughs> and you need a savior. You need someone who can rescue you. You know, I grew up, in, I grew up as a, quite a good guy. You know, I wanted to be friends with everyone in school. I was nice. I was actually nice. I was a nice guy. And I thought I was nice before God, and God was nice with me. And, um, and yet I, inside my heart, although outwardly I did religious stuff, I was a religious unbeliever. I was a religious rebel from God. In my heart, I worshipped myself. I did what I wanted to do. I was on the throne in my life. And God had to, when I got born again, I remember coming to the place where it was like, I, I am this, woe is me. And he doesn't blame others, but he realizes he's part of a corrupt and broken people. That even his lips, the very, that the words that come out of his mouth, even his very lips, even his very words are corrupt. Even if he wants to say, praise God, even that's corrupted and tainted with sin. Isn't that amazing? You know, sometimes the most gifted people I know and people that love the Lord and worship the Lord, and they speak on behalf of God. We tainted. Even the best of us are tainted with sin. We stained with it. Without Him, how much don't we need Him? So, what happens now? So, here's Isaiah, and he realizes like he's in trouble. He's kind of in really deep trouble. What does he do? Let me say, what does he do? He can do nothing. He can do nothing. He's actually stuck now because he sees a holy God who he was there to worship and he realizes, sinful man, holy God, what does he do? He cannot do anything. But God does something. And look at this. It's so interesting. In verse, it carries on in verse 6. So he's stuck. He's, he's undone. He's like, ah, what do I do? Lord. And he's, he's probably about to give up. He must have felt really discouraged at that point. Now you kind of come into the presence of God, you know, like, have you ever done that on Sunday? I've had such a good week, I'm, yeah, man, my quiet time's rocked, boom, you know, like, yeah, I even witnessed to someone this week, you know, I was able to help old lady across the road, yeah, man, I'm, you know, and then you come into the presence of God, and then you realize, ah, but by grace, like, Lord, you know, who am I? And so this is what happens to him, we see in verse 6, it speaks about this, and let's read. Verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Interesting. So he doesn't reach out to God. And you can't reach out to God, by the way. If you think you can reach out to God on your own, that is religion. Religion is defined as man attempting to reach God. Christianity is God reaching man. On a search and rescue mission. You can't reach him in your own strength. You need him to reach out to you, and he did. Let's carry on, we see. And the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, saying, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And so what do we find here? We find interesting that what does the seraphim do? From God, he comes, initiated by God, but he comes with a strange thing. It's like he comes with tongs. Like from a bra, you know, tongs from an altar. That's what it is. It's like bra utensil. And he comes with it and he plucks a coal 
from the altar, and he comes and he touches the lips of Isaiah. What a strange picture. Like, what the heck is going on? Like, what is he doing? And it's a picture, actually, of the work of Jesus. It's a picture of atonement. It's a picture, it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do when Jesus would come and he would cleanse us from our sins. How is it, you might say? How is that? Well, it's like this. Well, it takes coal from the altar. And the altar is an image in the Old Testament of the temple that the Jews would come to to worship in front of the, uh, before the temple and at the temple. And they would bring their sacrifices. As you know, if you were a good Jew and you wanted your sins forgiven, if you wanted to be atoned and cleansed, and you wanted to be right with God, what would you do? You didn't just go to sing and worship. You had to bring a blood sacrifice. And you took your little animal. If you were rich, you could have a goat or a lamb. If you were poor, the law said you could bring a little dove. And if you're really poor, you could bring grain. But let's say you were really poor. Not that poor, but poor enough to bring a dove. And you bring a dove, what you would do is, as, as a good Jew, you'd come into the temple, and you'd come into the temple courts, into kind of, they called it the, the outer courts. And you came to the outer court, and as you walked through, you saw this giant altar. It's basically a braai. Okay? It's true. It was a giant bride. It was a giant um, kind of uh, rectangular, um, uh, you know, big urn thing that had a grill on top of it, like a bride grill. And as you walked in there, you would see priests that were sacrificing animals, that you would see blood running off the altar. If any of you have been into a butcher's shop and you've gone to the back of to see what the butcher does, you know, we see the front part that's packaged and neat with all the meats. But if you go to the back, you'll find that the butcher is most likely wearing a butcher's um, apron, and it's stained with blood. It's like bloodied, and it's like it's that guy at the back, and you know, you don't, it's not that nice. And that's what the priest had. The priest would wear garments that were stained with blood because they were used to sacrificing animals to put the animal on the altar so that it could be used as a substitute for the sinner. So anyway, let's say you'd bring your little dove, you know, maybe it's even a little, here it is, you've got your dove there. You know, you like this dove. You know, dove's done nothing wrong. The dove has done nothing wrong. The dove is innocent. And you bring this little dove, and what you would do is you would take it to the priest as a sinner, and the priest would lay his hands on the dove, and you would lay your hands on, your, on the dove together, and both of you would lean your weight on the animal. And it symbolized that your sin was being transferred, your guilt, the things you had done wrong and where you had messed up and you hadn't loved God like you should have and, and, and you've said unkind things and you've, you've just whatever you've done, you would actually take that in your heart and you would pray it out and you would take those sins and you would literally confess your sins over that animal. And you'd lean on your weight on that animal and it symbolized that all your guilt and shame was being transferred onto that little creature. Then they would take the creature, they would kill it, the blood would shed out, and they would put it on the altar, and it would be consumed up as an aroma to the Lord. That was Old Testament worship. Don't try and do that today. You're going to break some municipal bylaws, you know. Why does he do that? So it says that the seraphim takes a coal from the altar. The altar was the place where the blood was. And it's a symbol of grace. It's a symbol that someone else has paid for your sins. And it's a symbol 
that God reached out to you in his son Jesus. And you know, the wonderful thing about the gospel story is this. I love the gospel. Is that Jesus himself was simultaneously the priest and simultaneously the sacrifice. And he himself got onto the altar and it says that he laid his life down for you. And that all your sin and all your shame all the things that, that we are embarrassed about and, and we've broken God's laws, even our good works that we've done in our name, that has been leaned on. It's like the Father put all those sins, all the sins of the world, it says, were put upon him. And on that place on the cross, he died in his blood. And every drop of blood was spilled. Every drop was important. Every drop was for us. Every single drop. And when Isaiah sees this, he, he encounters this, he gets atoned. And I want to say, this is, a sing, uh, 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 this is a picture of the mercy of God. Isaiah doesn't deserve to be atoned and cleansed. He's a sinner. You are a sinner. And that is mercy. Mercy and grace. Undeserved favor. Unmerited favor given by God. This is good news. You know, I want to say this, and I'm going to land in and close, is we come to God on the basis of his mercy, not on the basis of our good works. You need to believe that. And we need to remind ourselves of that. You need to remind yourself of that the whole time. I do. I actually preach the gospel to myself. You know that. It's not like I get saved every day. But I actually look in the mirror sometimes, and when I'm feeling condemned, sometimes I wake up or I'm going through the day, and I have this vague sense of condemnation and guilt that's over me. I don't need to get saved again. I am saved. I'm a child of God. But I have to remind myself. I've got to reckon myself dead. I've got to say, Mike, you are loved by God. Jesus died on the cross for you. Don't you know that you are saved because of what he has done? Because of his work, I am saved. I am saved by good works, but by his good works. So we need Jesus. And so this shows us mercy. We see holiness. We see glory. We see lordship. And lastly, we see grace and mercy. You and I are recipients of mercy. You know, if someone asks you, how are you doing? You should always say, oh, I'm better than I deserve. How are you doing? I heard that from someone once. You know, I was like, I like that. How are you doing, man? Oh, I'm better than I deserve. You know, Paul, just to say like this understanding as Christians, I mean, we don't have time to get into it, but this idea that we are simultaneously saints, you're born again, you're saved, you're a child of God, and simultaneously you're a sinner even as a Christian. Now, it doesn't mean that you identify as a sinner, but it means that there's an aspect of your life that after you're born again, there's part of your old nature that's still stuck with you. That's why you're not yet perfect. If you think you're perfect, come speak to me. I'll, I'll, I'll make you sin. <laughs> I know some, sorry, this, uh, that sounds blasphemous. I must share a story. I was reading about Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher once, and he was like a preacher of grace. He loved the grace of God. He preached the grace of God. He hated people boasting. And uh, there was once a man uh, that hung out with him, and this man always boasted about how good he was. You know, he's like the Pharisee, I think in Luke, that went to the temple to pray. And he prays, thank God that I'm not like that, that tax collector there. He was praying next to him, weeping, broken before God. He goes, thank God, I'm not like him. I tithe. I give to the poor. I pray. You know? And he's just, he's just trying to boast before God of how, how great he is. And then the tax collector's like, God, I'm just broken. You know? I'm, you know, you've given me mercy, but Lord, I need you. 
And then the whole point of the story, it shocks the religious people because at the end of the day, Jesus says the one that he's made right with God, they're going, yeah, 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 it's, a, it's the Pharisee, right? The tax collector. What? The tax collector. He's made right with God because he didn't try to save himself by his good works. You know, and I find myself doing that. I find myself coming before God and I kind of, I pat myself on the back, Mike, and I kind of feel the sense of a basis that I can have confidence before God because I've done well that day. I've done well that week. I want to say that is, that is a false confidence. While that can give you assurance, your basis for being right with God is mercy and grace through Jesus. And somehow we're in this mystery of part saint, part sinner. You're a saint, but you still sin. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, you're a saint who sins. You need ongoing grace and mercy. I think it was Spurgeon. The whole point was Spurgeon. Yeah, I was getting to this. Yeah, sorry, I got sidetracked. So, yeah, yeah, what's, what was that? What was it with Spurgeon? Anyway, let's end. <laughs> and quickly, so what happened with Spurgeon is Spurgeon was talking to this guy, and the guy was boasting so much about, you know, how, like, he doesn't, and God is called him, he's conquered over his sin, and he kind of, in the end, what he did was he was drinking some juice or whatever, and he threw it in the guy's face. And the guy was like, ah, and he kind of lost his temper with him. See, you are a sinner. He just made him sin. He says, you know, and I wish you just would sin because then you realize you need grace. Just stop it, man. Just sin. Because then you realize you need the grace of God. Sorry. (laughs) What? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's like sometimes we try so hard in our own strength. It's like just give up, man. Just let God be God. Don't try and be a perfectionist. Don't try and work it out yourself. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. I'm not saying you should sin. We shouldn't sin. We should aim not to sin. I'm not saying, yeah, Mike said I can go and sin. Let's go, man. Let's go and like, you know, do all those. No, don't do that. But I'm just saying be aware of the fact that we need his mercy and his grace. And so I want to end, and I want to end with this, is if anything, just the fact that I love the way and then in ending how Isaiah responds. How does Isaiah respond? He responds because he's experienced grace. What does he do? I love this. He says this in verse 8. Heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then there's a commission. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. The call of God is is made real through grace. God calls people that are saved by grace. And you boast of grace. You boast of him and what he has done. If you want to be used by God, do you want to be used by God? then go and find the grace of God. Find His grace. Let the coal touch your lips. Be a recipient of His mercy. Find the mercy of God. You know, there's that scripture in Hebrews 4. It says, we come before the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace and help in times of need. Yes, you have to find it. You've got to look for grace. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to find the grace of God in your life through the work of the Spirit, through Jesus. And so I want to end with the scripture in Romans eleven thirty three, and I'd like us to respond in this. Um, let's read this together. And um, you know the last part of the scripture, by the way, because it's such a well-known scripture. We're going to get to that now, now but we, we don't see the context. We don't see actually the part that comes before Romans 12, verse 1, which is so well-known. We quote it. 
But look at what it says before that. And Paul is actually worshiping God. He's like, he's got this doxology, the, dox, the worship of God. And he's actually just, he's overwhelmed with the greatness of God. And he's, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, uh, I'll read in the ESV. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. From that place. So he's he's just overwhelmed with the the majesty and greatness of God. And then he says in a response, I appeal to you, therefore... By the way, whenever you see the word therefore, you always ask, wherefore? Where does it come from? Because there's always a point before there to hit, to get the application. And he's wanting to say, you therefore, therefore brothers, by the mercies of God. I like what the NIV says, in view of God's mercy. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I want to end with that to say tonight, we are going to offer up our our, our bodies and we're going to put ourselves on the bry, like he did, on the altar, not to kind of impress God, but because if you know you belong to him, that's all you can do. God, here I am, use me. My hands are yours, my lips are yours, my mind is yours, my heart is yours, my feet are yours. Every part of me, Lord, I've got to put on the altar. And let you burn it up so I can be a living sacrifice. In other words, he's going to burn you while you're alive. And you're going to burn for him. You're going to burn for him. And you're going to burn your campuses. Burn those around you with the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the goodness and the greatness of God. Can we do that tonight?